What would you, what was the highlight of your week? Oh, I know. This is going to be relevant as well to your subject. A friend of ours gifted us a pressure cooker, and I used it for the first time this past week to make chicken drumsticks. Yeah. Can you also cook rice in that thing? Yes. You can cook rice. You can cook porridge. You can cook soup. You can cook anything because it also has like heat settings. So if you just learn what the heat settings are for different types of dishes, you can cook whatever you want. So pressure cooker. Um, I wanted to make honey garlic chicken and I had four drumsticks. They're pretty big. There's only two of us. And also added some veggies in it. And the chicken came out so good. Definitely better. So my kitchen, I don't have an oven. So my only options are stovetop. So whenever I search recipes, sometimes I have to intentionally search like stovetop chicken wings, stuff like that. Right. And I was so pleased with how it came out. It was just delicious. Like that's when, nice. When when I cook, I mean, I usually I think my food is passable, right? And Stanley's always very complimentary, but he's also my partner, so it kind of has to be. But when I ate this chicken, I was like, I would make this again for someone. That's how good I believe in this chicken. Nice. So that's a good. Highlight. It is nice when you cook something with, I mean, the general expectation it'll taste good, but it turns out better than you expected. Yeah. I I do think this somewhat changes how you value eating out. I mean, we can wait until we get into it in my subject, but you know, knowing that if there are certain things out there that are more produce driven in terms of dishes and things you make and less about technique and access to tools, then it makes you think twice potentially about spending what you would normally spend eating out at a restaurant for that same dish. Like I have a response to that, but I think we should save it for your subject. So put a pin in that. This is Making It Up, co-hosted by myself, Sharice Poon, and Eugene Can. We come together on a weekly basis to talk about things that we are interested in, have questions about, want to get each other's thoughts on. Making It Up is produced by Makin, which is original storytelling at its purest through captivating audio, engaging words, and beautiful visuals. Making It Up is an exercise in analyzing and dissecting important movements in creative culture. It's an opportunity to sound off on each other and make sense of the complex, intertwined world we live in. If you like what you hear and want to help keep us going, you can support us on patreon.com slash We try to come to some sort of conclusion in order to be helpful to you, our listeners, but really we are working through things and we appreciate you working through them with us. Let's get going. Yep. My subject this week comes courtesy of the New York Times and an op-ed titled A Freshly Killed Chicken is Mightier Than the Coronavirus. How Hong Kong's Food Culture Has Adapted to Epidemic After Epidemic, Fending Off Disease While Saving Its Favorite Dishes and Its Soul. So this story spoke to me for various reasons. Uh, As I mentioned in Discord when we were going through our weekly process of having the community chime in on the topics they feel uh, most interested in my whole take was like this is hong kong obviously we live in hong kong and food culture when i say food culture uh is really interesting to me on the basis that it's just like it's always there and it sort of governs loosely uh culture and society because obviously eating is a primary need right and how food is perceived and how we interact with it is this interesting sort of social lubricant 
It's a social layer, et cetera, et cetera. So this story comes courtesy of Dizan McLean, who highlights the massive changes that have swept through Hong Kong's culinary scene. And this is not just recently, it's just over time. Uh, as, as most people know, Hong Kong is a very densely populated city. It's not uncommon for you to share a table with strangers and eatery during busy hours. So uh, when I was thinking about this, the best way to describe it is if you're at the food court and you randomly roll up to some table and ask if you can sit down. But the difference also is that because these are restaurants, the person that owns the restaurant or runs the restaurant is actually trafficking people to your table. Uh, <laughs> I and love that's actually, how you said trafficking. Trafficking people yeah, I've, to I've your I've used table. that word a lot recently, like trafficking content, trafficking people. But yeah, it's like, I think in certain instances, it can be a little bit weird if you're not used to it. So it's like a stranger sitting at your table who you don't know. Uh, and obviously this is something you can't really do now because of both yeah. governmental restriction and I'm sure a little bit of psychological uh, discomfort with having someone you don't know sitting at your table, right? You don't Which know where they've shame. been. Which is a shame. Yeah. It, I've, I spoke about this before. It's like, it's interesting to go to a popular restaurant that's affordable. And I say affordable because that means people of all walks of life can go, right? Mm -hmm. And to not have that ability to just share a smile or just yeah. acknowledge that you guys are sharing the same space and you guys are equals eating at the same table, right? I know this sounds maybe overly sentimental, but I have real experiences of that toy of sharing tables with people. Yeah, that toy is like the Cantonese sort of translation. It's like overlapping tables is the literal yeah. translation. And then whoever has ordered first and then their food comes, the other party kind of like looks at your food and then you guys have a discussion about the dishes. And this has definitely happened to me more than once. Whether like oh, I had ordered something and then like the people across from me like are like, oh, what's that? Or like they ordered something and I was like, I want that as well. And that's such... Yeah. And now I, I completely understand. I'm not saying that the health and safety measures are not unwarranted, but it's something we we've lost. Yeah. So, I mean, over the course of history, plagues and viruses have in actuality impacted food culture. So prior to COVID-19, there was obviously SARS in 2002 and 2003. And one of the biggest changes, and this is something I don't know how prevalent it is in North America, I think when I go back, I still see it. I don't even I think it. I don't think it's prevalent in many places outside of Hong Kong. Oh, really? Including in Asia. Oh, you know, what? you might be right because I remember going back and having to ask for this. Anyways, I'm we're all talking about something that no one knows we're talking about. Yes, but so I'll, it's because I'll we're looking it. at the same notes. <laughs> yeah. So one of the biggest changes was that SARS forced restaurants to use communal chopsticks. So instead of having individual utensils that you and I each use to both get pieces of food from the dish we also used to eat right mm -hmm. so what changed was you had communal chopsticks that were only for serving yeah and yeah. even in satan tank they have color differentiations yeah or, and satan tank is like yeah sorry kind the, of a local cafe affordable eateries in hong kong like it's everywhere it doesn't matter the price point of the place you go to like they have a system for communal chopsticks versus personal chopsticks yeah. And I mean, because of the pandemic, a lot of things have become, as you know, much more wasteful. There's waste generated from face masks. Eating utensils have now become 
one-off disposable ones. Even coffee shops where they used to allow you to bring your own cup can't do that anymore. Yeah, yeah. One thing about chopsticks at those little tea restaurants, like what they call cha cha tangs, it's not that none of them do it anymore, but I think a lot of them have removed the the basic communal canister of chopsticks. So usually you would just serve yourself to your chopsticks. And obviously you can't do that now. Yeah. But I know that my local spot, when I went like, I don't know, a few, few months ago, it was still there. So literally I could go grab my chopsticks and touch 30 other adjacent pairs of chopsticks and it wouldn't be an issue. Yeah. Well, it, I, would be, it could be an issue, but yeah. No, I was saying the local spots around where my parents live, which is a little bo- bit more suburban in Hong Kong, it was still there as well. Yeah. And it was yeah. so funny that they had the partitions, but you know, at those restaurants where there's only one set of sauces, like soy sauce and spicy sauce yeah. and stuff, and that sits on one half of the partition, right? So you still have yeah. to pass around those sauces yeah. to the other just, guys. Just for people that are unfamiliar in Hong Kong, they've created manual dividers. It could be like what clear plexiglass. It could be just like a piece of plastic that just yeah. prevents you from seeing and or like, I guess, droplets from passing directly. Yeah. So it would have to go over top. Yeah. I, I can continue with these small changes and examples of how things have happened and, and impacted food culture. I don't know if I'm, if it's too granular, but stop me if it's, if it's, you know, if the point's sort of been received, but sure. You know, there've been other cuisines that have been impacted. For example, hot pot, which is the act of having sort of a communal pot of boiling stock and different soup stocks. And you just cook your raw food and ingredients inside of it. There's a family of 11 that got infected while eating that. And then soon after like, Hot pot restaurants basically went dead for the, I mean, it's, I don't even know if it's picked up. I don't, I don't think know if it it's picked has. Back up. Yeah. The entire premise of hot pot is not very sanitary. Super communal. Yeah. You're just dunking in raw food and then you're grabbing things. And then sometimes people are like, oh, like I touched something raw. Let me put the chopsticks into the boiling water to clean them. So there's, yeah, it's. There's a really lot of pseudoscience it? there, but I love hot yeah. pot. So, yeah. So what, then, what else have I, you observed? Well, this is actually all mostly from the piece oh, itself. Yeah, that's yeah. interesting. So, up until September 11th, you could only dine in groups of two, and mm-hmm. in Cantonese cuisine, which is the dominant cuisine in Hong Kong, it shifted how you ate dinner because traditionally, when you go and eat. I wouldn't say that every family is going and having a dinner involving six to eight people, but that's sort of the sweet spot, I'd say, for Chinese cuisine, uh, Cantonese cuisine, where you can order, generally speaking, a dish per person. But it's not meant to be a singular dish where, oh, I'm going to order the chicken and I only eat a plate of chicken. It's about ordering a variety of dishes and having a balanced meal. So obviously in a group of two, you're a lot more limited to how many dishes you can order and what that looks like. So usually you'll have like vegetables, chicken, fish, et cetera, et cetera. And when you only have a group of two and even at four, it's a bit limiting. So this is something that is not rooted in science either. But as the author states, Cantonese food is a lot about dietary equilibrium. Well, because as you were saying this, I was thinking about those meals and usually it would be 
three or four proteins, two vegetables. One is a soup. Soup. One one might be something unhealthy, like something might be deep fried, but that's okay because you're sharing it between six to eight people. And then you have like something steamed and something, you know, braised. And there's just so much more variety. But like you said, when you eat as two people, if you get the deep fried dish, that's it. That's the meal. Yeah. Yeah. So in this piece, it also shifts towards the concepts of wet markets. Wet markets, I think, you know, have been a hotly contested issue because of the COVID breakout from its very core. It was supposed to be something that happened in Wuhan, but it's very much part of Chinese and Asian culture. And as the author states, wet doesn't mean what you think, but rather a term for a market where fresh vegetables, meat, fish, and sometimes live animals Although in Hong Kong, that's pretty hard to come by, I think. You mean live animals? Anyways, they're sold. Yeah, live animals at the wet well, not market. Not anymore. Uh, fish. You get fish, but not pre, mammals. Pre-H5N1, um, you had way, way more live animals. H5N1 is the chicken disease. Yeah. So the, these wet markets sell that type of produce, right? As opposed to dry markets, which sell dry goods, which are canned or bottled foods. So fr- freshness is pretty paramount in Cantonese cuisine. And I think a lot of Asian cuisines where you're trying to minimize the time between acquiring the good and preparing it for a meal or a dish. Yeah. And in Hong Kong, it's part of the fabric of culture and society. I mean, there's a wet market in literally every neighborhood. Yep. I actually look at it more as a farmer's market. I know. Like if you told someone, yeah, that's probably a better way of positioning it because... I think we it's, messed up with the word wet because yeah. that sounds super unappealing, but essentially it's a farmer's market. Yeah, it's a farmer's market. Uh, and the the cap off part of this piece talks about the importance of fresh chicken because fresh chicken is something that is paramount towards Cantonese cuisine because of, uh, I guess, the the expectation around it, because the minute you get frozen or few day old chicken the texture and the taste change significantly and like our friends at Yardbird only use fresh local chicken and it's never frozen and you can kind of taste a difference too i think that when i first moved to hong kong from north america i i didn't really like this local style of chicken just the the variety in the species because it was a lot leaner Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's not like North American chicken where they pump it full of like saline solution and you have like these massive breasts uh, that are like kind of gross and dry. But once you understand the nuance behind it, like the ratio of fat, skin and meat is far more balanced than this type of like Cantonese chicken. You're actually but, making me hungry right now. Yeah. And it's still morning. But all I yeah. can think about is Yalkai is like yeah. a yellow I, oil chicken. <laughs> yeah, I hope this doesn't come off as too food centric because I think there's a lot of interesting parallels with culture in it. But in, in general, it's the reason why chicken's so important is that at one point in time, they wanted to ban the sale of live chickens and people sort of revolted around that idea. And they ended up having to put together some very strict and stringent rules to ensure the safety of both people buying the food and the health and safety of the chicken itself. So there's something like 20 
seven processing plants in Hong Kong for chicken, and they're checked weekly to make sure they're up to spec. So this is a representation of how important fresh chicken was to the local population and how they weren't is. willing. Yeah, they weren't willing to have the government come in and say, no, you cannot do that. And, you know, only have frozen chicken. So I guess all in all, with all these things that have developed over the course of this, what I find really interesting is how do we assess which food customs and cultures to keep and which are the ones that we simply have to let go of, right? I mean, and I don't it, think individuals are making conscious decisions about food culture as a whole because food culture is shaped by lots of people expressing the same type of comfort or discomfort or the same type of need. Correct. So as we already talked about, there's enough widespread individual discomfort with hot pot that temporarily, at least, hot pot restaurants are not able to do business or not significant business. But hot pot as a way of eating still lives on in homes, in households. Yeah, so correct. That, Actually, that's, that's a, a good point. That's an interesting shift where hot pot as a kind of food, as a kind of, I don't even know what to talk, call hot pot, like as a type of cuisine structure was a thing where you might go out with like friends and have beers with it and, you know, it was honestly the skin. easiest, like everyone could get a little bit of what they yeah. wanted, assuming you liked hot pot. Yeah. Yeah. There's but no now pressure. in the house, like, does it become something more healthy? Yeah. Does it become something that's like more family oriented? Yeah. When I look at how these customs play out, either they increase in velocity or they die out. It's interesting to see what is, mandated by a government and what is something that's just picking up steam on its own so yeah. this is sort of tangential but in china they've been on this really big push to get people to not overconsume food not to waste food yeah that led to a type of content being banned on social media and streaming platforms so sometimes you would have these people basically consume enormous amounts of food on camera and they ban that so, so it's been interesting to see how some changes impacted by us on an individual level and other other changes are from the top down. Because, yeah, the, another rule actually was that and this is sort of goes in line with uh, probably alcohol consumption in the Western world. If you had a table of eight, you couldn't order more than eight dishes. Oh, wow. Yeah. So if you could order a ninth dish after the fact, like if you if you guys shown oh you know what we actually ate all our food and we're still hungry but you couldn't go and order 12 dishes for eight people that's so interesting i did not yeah. know that it's kind of different it's it's very similar to in the u.s or you know canada where oh you can only have so many ounces per hour of hard liquor oh i also did not know that yeah i was gonna say about wet markets something that you didn't mention is that i would say at some point in the summer June or July, there was an outbreak of cases in relation to wet markets in Hong Kong. And that meant a lot of people were not going to wet markets, even though the government didn't close them down. Like the government cl cleaned the individual ones where the cases were broken out, but they didn't close down all wet markets. Right. But still, people were hesitant to go to them as frequently. But I feel like 
Hong Kong people are resilient and adaptable. So actually what happened is that people really flooded the outdoor wet markets. There's kind of two types in Hong Kong, like not in every neighborhood has them, but big neighborhoods will have like an indoor building with stalls, but then also like a street nearby that has stalls. And so when people were hesitant to go to the indoor building where maybe they used to go more regularly and there's the butchers and salespeople that they're used to, they went out onto the streets. And I've and I've observed this in the neighborhood where I now live, where earlier in the summer, the streets were so packed, like flooding into the car lane, like around the three to six p.m. like shopping rush for food. But now there's more of like a 50-50 between going mm. to the building and then going to the streets. So at least there's been a lot of temporary adjustments. But I don't know if yeah. pandemic-related adjustments. I would be curious what sticks after you know a year from now. This is exactly what I was going to get at because I've witnessed after the relaxation of social distancing that people forget very quickly. Yeah. So I was yesterday, and maybe it's even psychological where there's an assumed level of trust with people that you know personally. Yeah, there's instances where you'll be in a public setting with your friends, you haven't seen them for a while, and someone gets a drink, oh, taste this drink, it's really good, and they'll just pass it around, you know? And that's something that I thought people would think twice about, but it's clearly not the case. And I've witnessed... I've witnessed that on more than one occasion. It wasn't just one isolated incident. Well, I've also seen so, people resume hugging each other as greetings and farewells. You everything's been relaxed. Like just as much as social distancing, just as much as social distancing has been relaxed, so has the things that we'd adopted during social distancing. Whether yeah. it was physical contact, not sharing drinks, all of that seems to have gone out the window rather quickly. Which in some ways makes you wonder, maybe things will return back to normal quicker than you think. Well, at the same time, this is so not related to food culture, but I'm going to say it anyway, because it's related to like pandemic related changes that stick. I think mask usage and hand washing have stuck and will stick yeah. for much longer. People being yeah. very diligent about washing their hands, being diligent about wearing a mask and carrying a mask with you. And that's not going to change. Yeah. I, anything that has some sort of strong public announcement push will probably have some staying power. But until the government is telling people, don't share your drinks, I can't see it having the same sort of impact. You know, you asked me in the intro or you brought up this fact in the intro, but we didn't go back to it. Do you want to go back to it now? Because I was sharing about the pressure cooker chicken and you were saying how learning to cook and being proficient at it changes your relationship to eating out. Mm -hmm. And I'm actually grateful that in this pandemic, I've been required to cook so much because I feel like it's been a window of opportunity. I wouldn't otherwise have like made myself do to learn how to cook things that I wanted to eat from outside that I would usually just go out and get. Yeah. And it's I mean, shifted my relationship yeah. to eating out in the sense that I now think of eating out more as a social thing than I used to. I'm not just how to say it, like 
the reasons you eat out are a mix of things, right? And I guess I would say before the pandemic, one big reason I ate out was to eat the food that was being cooked outside, whatever that was, like a dish I wanted or a cook I wanted to try. But now I think of it more of it as like a social reason. That's why I would want to go out to eat. Yeah. Instead of it being like taste or dish. Uh, if you break down all the reasons why you go to eat, some of them have lost a little bit of, I don't know if credibility is the right word, but if it's convenience, the food itself, ambiance, social, like I think maybe the food itself has, and pricing in Hong Kong in a way has, has dictated whether you go out or don't go out mm. with certain frequency. Mm-hmm. So, you know, in the last few months, we've had some friends that some of us will get together you know, let's say once a month, right? And if you buy quality ingredients, you recognize that the amount of money you're spending for a comparable experience, food experience, I'm not going to say restaurant experience, is it almost makes it worthwhile. Like you're like, why didn't, why was I spending this much money in a restaurant in the first place? But this is more on the higher end. Like I'm not talking about just a regular like soup noodle dish. I'm talking something about a little bit a little bit more fancy. Well, I think you also realize how nice it is to eat at home. And I feel like overseas people already know this, but because Hong Kong people are like limited on space, usually you resort to going out to eat instead of going to each other's homes. Mm -hmm. But even in a small space, eating at home gives you the comfort of privacy and not being around people you know we said this earlier not being around people that you might be uncomfortable with for health and safety reasons and yeah i think that's it's been nice that that's been highlighted i don't have anything else to add um should we move on let's do it My subject this week is about chess. It's a two-parter, thanks to Eugene for finding two relevant articles. The first one is about chess being popular on streaming now. And the second part is about AI helping to make chess more beautiful. And this first article is a short one, also from the New York Times, written by Kellen Browning. And it opens to be about this chess master called Hikaru Nakamura, who has been streaming chess on Twitch since 2018, I think the article said. So pre-pandemic, but then really kind of... He's arguably considered, I've never watched him properly, but he's considered sort of the the most visible figure of the streaming chess world. Oh, definitely. I understand as much. He's both young and he is marketable. And he was signed by Team Solo Mid and is part of an esports team. So he's definitely really popular, even with people who don't play chess. And the article goes into why that is, because Nakamura is not just a chess genius, but he's something people like about Twitch streamers is that Nakamura is really good on camera with chatting regularly, with being in tune with Twitch culture. So a little bit more about chess streaming popularity. Since the pandemic began, viewership has gone up. From March to August, people watched 41.2 million hours of chess, which sounds like a lot of hours. But the key stat is that that is four times as much as the previous six months. So definitely 
pandemic equals greater chess popularity. Uh, I am curious, what is the reason behind this? Is it because more people are playing chess? Is it because there's now access to this type of content that didn't exist before? A lot of questions. I don't know if you're going to answer them or well, not, but I, I just want to throw that out question. there. I have the same question. I actually have the same question because chess obviously existed pre-pandemic and people were playing it. Like Nakamura was already playing it and already streaming and people were watching him, but just not in the numbers they are right now. So what is it about in the midst of the pandemic that people suddenly started turning to chess? And anecdotally, there are at least three or four people I know personally who have been playing chess in the pandemic, like who already knew how to play the game. But because I don't even know because of what, but during the pandemic, downloaded, downloaded an app or started playing on their computer. So it also doesn't seem to have a real reason why nobody told me, oh, this is why I'm picking it back up. Yeah. I've, I, did you play chess growing up? I know how to play chess. I don't remember why I know. Like, I don't remember the circumstances in which I learned to play chess. I'm not good. Yeah, I played a little bit when I was in junior high, but not just for fun. Nothing serious. I mean, we can play against each other. That could be somewhat mm. entertaining. The, so the thing is, is that in actuality, the second article at AI turns me off playing chess. What? Yeah. I actually, okay. But wait, wait, I'll wait, let wait. you get to it. I'll let you get to it and I'll come back to sure. it. Sure. Hold on to that thought. I'm curious about that. So I don't have any, I have no answers as to what it is about chess, the game that has been drawing people. And this article also does not really address that either. It's just saying that, you know, it's, chess has become super popular to watch and Nakamura is really entertaining. And he plays this version of chess called Blitz Chess, which sounds so interesting. I did not know this existed, where each player has just a few minutes to complete all of their moves. So as in the entire game, each player gets some number of minutes. And Nakamura, is, he said he's probably one of the best in the world, like top three, essentially. Well, actually, he says, I'm probably the best or second best player ever in the entire history, at least online. So a lot of hedging there but for example a game that he won he made 41 moves in 16 seconds and i can definitely see how that would be entertaining to watch so i think maybe part of the streaming appeal is that they're already modifying the game in certain ways to be entertaining as streaming material and this is related to the second article so Second article is from Wired, and it's called AI Ruined Chess, Now It's Making the Game Beautiful Again. And I was personally interested in this bit of news because somehow in the back of my mind, I read somewhere, this has always stuck with me, about how Deep Blue beat Garry Kasparov in 1997, which mm -hmm. is, you know, I was just a kid, but I must have read, I don't remember. Somehow this has really stuck in my head. So Deep Blue beating Garry Kasparov was sort of this first instance of AI beating humans. And it's really seen as this like landslide event where computers were developed to a point where everyone could agree that it was now superior, superior quotation marks, to the human mind. And then later on, AlphaGo 
beat Lee Sadel in 2016. And that was equivalently like a huge landslide event that computers were able to beat the clear like world champions in these two games of chess and go. And I think against that backdrop, that's part of what made this article interesting to me because a version of that technology like literally a version of that original technology that beat Gary Kasparov is now working with another chess mastermind to make chess more creative. And the chess mastermind in question is Vladimir Kramnik. And Kramnik says that he feels chess isn't as creative as it used to be. And it's partly because top players just memorize their games and they prepare their strategies with the use of computers as well. So what has been developed is this AI called Alpha Zero. And what it does is it explores different variants of chess with different rules from the existing game. And so it can like really quickly figure out if that game is promising based off of these different rules. And the qualification here is like promising to who, right? And in this case, it, it's Kramnik and other ch chess master players who are deciding or who feel like by looking at this data and the research that this would be exciting to this like top tier chess community. So you were saying that that makes you less interested in playing chess. I mean, I think that the, the fact that chess had gone to a point where it was really just around memorization, that became really disinteresting. Yeah, yeah, I actually that's really, really enjoyed the idea. I like the idea of finding ways to randomize it and or make it something that's a little bit more creative. Oh, okay. So, that that's my take on it. I think it uh, to parallel it, I would be really bummed out, or I would just not appreciate sports as much if it was li literally a brute force engagement. Yeah. Meaning the person that's the strongest uh, and fastest, which is in many ways like American football, right? Like that's why they are so obsessive around how high can you jump, how much can you bench press. Real, real Obviously, games are not defined faster. by that. Yeah. So for me, I enjoy sports on the basis that it's like physicality, technicality, and tactics, right? Yeah. So if you have those three things, you don't have to be the strongest, but if you have tactics and technique, you can win, which is why I both enjoy sports and was a little bit turned off by the fact that chess had become a thing where really the physicality, let's just say it was just purely tactics driven, right? Like it's yeah. tactics that were memorized over the course of you know thousands of hours and that was how you won or lost exactly oh, i i misinterpreted you i thought you were going to say that you didn't approve or didn't feel like alpha zero was exciting but actually you feel the same way as kramnik and these other chess master players which was that it was just a competition of memory like who can who to, can yeah, memorize to, to, the most yeah and this actually draws comparisons to our Shopify story because ultimately if there's several different factors that all contribute to success, but you mitigate and or remove them, then it really becomes a one or two element race. Yeah. And the terms of Shopify was and just e-commerce in general, it was about your ability to market and brand. Right? Creativity didn't really play as much of a role. I mean creativity marketing, yes, but there are other things that were negated. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. And I think it's really nice that I think 
the deep blue experiment was really pivotal in AI and technology. And I don't feel like the developers of deep blue were trying to make chess boring. They weren't like, we're going to make this computer. And now chess master players can just memorize the computer strategy and that mm -hmm. will change chess. That's like, that was not their intention. It was really just to like test AI intellect. Right. But then now I think that return to finding a way to use that same AI tech to make chess creative is really is a wonderful solution. Yeah. You were going to say, I mean, there, I hate race related sports in terms of it's a marathon. It's a 10 K uh, sprint or whatever, because so much of that is really determined by, I mean, I'm not, I'm probably oversimplifying it, but when it's a linear sport, like there's, it, it's a little bit more simple than a team sport. Right. And you can use different elements to win in a team sport in terms of reading what's going on around you and leveraging that versus in a linear sport, obviously it's like, Oh, this is a competition against yourself combined with a very a very defined physical base right like i can the chance of me becoming the world's fastest sprinter is zero right and this because there's a, a genetic threshold that i need to cross to be competitive in that but you know i'm i i hate obviously football like soccer is my sport right so i've seen people of all walks of life been able to uh succeed at a high level without being the fastest right there's other things they can bring to the table that allow them the ability to succeed at the highest level and that's sort of my romantic notion of why i really enjoy democratic sports like that that don't necessarily prioritize innate things whether it's talent whether it was like you know genetics etc mm. i'm the type of person who really enjoys what you call linear sports but I also don't think about sports in such a competitive mindset, I would say. I don't. Most people don't. Because you've positioned it a lot as the opportunity to be really good at the sport. And I agree that in team sports and more democratic sports, there's more of a chance to be really good and to improve yourself. But don't think about my enjoyment of the sports I play in that way. And I think for personal fulfillment, what you've said about, you know, challenging yourself and that mental space when you are running or swimming or skiing or whatever it is, is really gratifying. Yeah. There were two more things I wanted to talk about in terms of this article. One is that not related to the AI, but well, it is related, but not about the computer part. So what they set Alpha Zero to do is to try out nine different versions of the game with rule changes. Okay. And I won't get into the technicality of the types of rules they changed, but for example, one of them gives the pawn the ability to move two spaces instead of one. Okay. So that's like a tiny rule change, but then it explores like what happens as a result of that change. And I think rule changes in sports slash even broader than sports is really fascinating because mm -hmm. We become used to the idea of a game going a certain way. And I think people get upset when you decide to change the rules of something. But 
why should something always be played the way it is? You know, like, yeah, there's no in terms of this example, like. Chess doesn't have to only be official the way it's played right now. Like, I think to consider yeah. more possibilities of chess is way more exciting for everyone. And why should they why should people only play the one version forever? And that's the only way you can be like a world master player. If someone yeah. can create a version of chess that's more creative, more beautiful, more random, then I think that's way, way more powerful. Yeah. And in many ways, if you don't modernize the game, then you'll inevitably lose a consumer base, right? Yeah. Or a fan base. Yeah. It just gets predictable and stifling. Yeah. The thing is, is that chess itself uh, lends itself to a certain type of commentary, right? Because there's so many things that are going on. Because when I see someone playing a team sport and they make a certain move, it's very defined what the options are in terms of like, it seems obvious when they make a decision. But when it comes to chess, I assume there's like a lot of calculations going on inside their brain. And if there's someone that's willing to walk you through that and what they're saying as they go, I think that's actually immensely powerful. Yeah. Right. Cause it's explaining the process. Yeah, exactly. Because I, 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 especially on the pitch, like I can't be doing that cause everything happens so quickly. Right. You're not, and your your goal isn't to be a streamer per se versus streaming. I think actually that might be one of the most underlying, most powerful points of streamers mm. is that their ability to walk you through the process of the game. Yeah. That's true. It's like lifting the curtain, you know? It's like, oh, yeah. this is exactly what I'm doing and how I'm doing it and why I'm doing it. I mean, I watch, I don't watch live streams because it's just something that I don't, I, I don't really need that, that sort of instant hit, right? I can happily watch something that's been pre-recorded or recorded earlier and it's on YouTube or whatnot. But I do realize that it is really interesting to have people walk them through their thought process when they perform at a really high level. Yeah. Like there's this uh, footballer named Dmitry Berbatov. He used to play for uh, Manchester United and a slew of other uh, premiership teams. And he has this really fun segment on his Instagram. He just comments on the goals he scored over the course of his career. And they're both funny witty as well as representation of like what he's thinking about and why he made certain decisions as he played. Yeah. Actually you tapped right into the other thing I still wanted to talk about, which was the difference between a game directed towards top tier players and then how that affects it. I wrote amateurs, but what I really mean is like everyone else who's not a top tier player. And it's like alpha zero. This is for this really niche community of top tier chess players who are bored with the way things have been with chess and where you're just memorizing things. And so Alpha Zero kind of gets them excited again. And there's like quotes in this piece from world champions, essentially, who say this is like revolutionary to them in the chess world. And so the average chess player is probably not going to be playing this type of chess immediately. But the fact that experts are kind of re-engaged in it means that more people will pick up chess or be interested in the game. And they might still be playing the original version but related to what you were saying about streaming it's 
it's really compelling to watch experts be excited about what they're doing and to be able to talk about yeah. it in the way that you've described, you know, in this like witty, revealing type of way. And I think that gets a lot of people interested in that subject, even if they might not previously have been. Yeah. The, the two connections I draw between our stories this week are how do things change and what are the motivating factors for them to change? Because in terms of food, there's obviously social and health reasons for change. And in the realm of chess, it's somewhat similar in the sense that there's like an outside force where there was AI and it ended up pushing chess to a certain place where it was disinteresting for the majority of the folks playing, right? Mm-hmm. Is that a good place to cap things off? Yeah. I like the connection you made between our two subjects. Good place to wrap up. If you are interested in hearing more about Macon, reading and listening to some of our stories focus on the sights and sounds of creative culture, you can visit us at Macon.com. M-A-E-K-A-N.com. You can also subscribe to us through your favorite podcast app and platforms. If you like this podcast, you can do us a huge favor by sharing this podcast with a friend or supporting us via patreon.com slash Macon. Also, if you want to get in touch with us, you can email myself at Charisse at Macon.com, C-H-A-R-I-S, or Eugene at Eugene at Macon.com, E-U-G-E-N-E. We love hearing from you. I'm Eugene. I'm Charisse. And this is Making It Up.